Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, continuing our series, The Beginning of Our Story. The Beginning of Our Story. We spent quite a bit of time in the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 4, especially 3 and 4, because it really is foundational for who we are. And my message this morning is entitled, The Constant Cry of God's People. The Constant Cry of of God's people. So remember what has happened in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, they're going into the temple. They see a man begging and they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And immediately his, his feet and ankles were strengthened and he was able to walk and he's jumping and leaping and praising God. And they go into the temple and the people in the temple, of course, they knew who this man was. They had seen him for 40 years the Bible says, begging and being in that condition. And so three times Peter preaches Jesus Christ to them. Once to the people, once again among the Sadducees, and then again he defends himself. And then notice what it says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people. What is that? The preaching of the name of Jesus. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. Understand, that's where we are in the world. People, we can have a spirituality. We can be a spiritual person. We can even talk about God. But don't talk about the exclusivity of Christianity and the claim of Christ. And so they answer, verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God. For that which was done, for the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Now, we've, we've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. They go back to the people of God, Peter and John, and now there's a celebration. There's, there's a prayer meeting that breaks out in verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Now, let me just say this. There are people, sometimes they attend Grace Baptist Church, who don't believe in the local church. They don't believe in church membership. They don't believe in the necessity of the local body. They don't believe in a pastor and deacons. They don't believe in the structure of the New Testament church. What company did Peter go to then? The electric company? What, what company did he go to? That's interesting, isn't it? I'll start over. I promise. Isn't that interesting? He had a company... To go to. Then, look at what it says in verse... So, verse 23, again, in being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And so we've looked at over the last several weeks how important it is to believe the book of Genesis. 
what Genesis says is true, and it's the foundation of everything that we believe. So remember, the beginning of our story, how did the people in the early church react to adversity? They went to God. They went to the God who is the creator of the world. When we encounter adversity, what are we to do? Go with one accord, with one voice, to the God who created the heaven and the earth. Why is that important? If he's big enough to create everything, then he's big enough to handle the problem that we're coming to him with. Amen? Um, Steve Howell mentioned to me a minute ago that his neighbor Dave, his son uh, was killed in a car accident. Is that right? On Friday. Can you imagine what it's like dealing with that? Now, I don't know if these people are saved. I, I don't know. Just Steve mentioned that we need to pray for this family, and we will at the end of the service. But I know this. I know this. Whatever we encounter, God is big enough to handle it. Amen? How many of you believe he raised Jesus from the dead? That's what we believe. And because he lives, we can live also. That's our hope. That, that's, that's what we trust in. And so, that's where they began their prayer. But now, look at the, their prayer continues. And here in verse 25 is the constant cry of the people of God. Who, by the mouth of thy servant David, hast said. So, God, by the mouth of David. This is a tremendous biblical example of inspiration. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These were not David's words. These were the, the words of God put in the mouth of David. That's what inspiration is. Now, how many of you believe that? You believe that, right? I'm asking again. How many of you believe that? This is what makes us different from all other Christian groups. The words of God came from God to men. They were written down. They were preserved. And they've been translated into our Bible. We still have them. Inspiration and scripturation, preservation and translation. That's the foundation of what we believe and what we trust. Amen? You're going to see how important this becomes here in a second. So who, verse 25, by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. What a group of people that is. Right? The people of Israel hated the Romans, but they got together to kill Jesus. The Gentiles hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Gentiles, but they all got together to kill Jesus. What do we call that, the United Nations? See, it's nothing new for people to gather together against the Lord and against his Christ and by extension against his people. The constant cry of the people of God is, why do the heathen rage? God, why do you allow this? Now here at Grace Baptist, for years we have a scriptural answer for this. Why do people ask this question? So we're going to look at two passages 
get Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and Psalm 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and Psalm 2. If you're a guest with us, one thing that you will notice is that the basis for everything we do is the Word of God. This is, this is where we get our understanding of the Bible. And so it'll help you to have a Bible in your hand. If you don't have one with you, just look under the chair in front of you, and there'll be a Bible there. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and look at verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. All right? Because because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. All right? So, these nations come against God. They stand up against God. They shake their fists against God. They unite against the Lord, His Christ, and His people. And the people of God constantly say, Why do the heathen rage? Why does God allow that? All right, go to Psalm 2. Get Psalm 2 and also get 2 Peter chapter 3. Psalms 2 and 2 Peter chapter 3. So this is what the people of God are praying. And by the way, I hope that you notice this. God's people knew the Word of God. And the Word of God that they had was the Old Testament. So, Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying... So, in the New Testament, it says, and against His Christ, Christ and anointed, that's the same one, same person. Saying, verse 3, Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away from us. Okay, now look at This is so important. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Here's what the world thinks. This is why they hate God. This is why they hate God's Son, Jesus Christ. And this is why they hate God's people. This is why they hate God's Word. Because God stops them from doing what they want. Sometimes, if you've not raised your children well... You will tell your teenager they're not allowed to do something. And what is it that the child then says? I hate you. Why? You're keeping them from doing what they want. Now, what they're wanting to do is probably not go to the church and have a prayer meeting with God's people. That, that is probably not what you're stopping them from doing. Amen? Amen. What is it? They want to do something that you know will harm them, that you know would violate your household rules or the Word of God, and so you are keeping them from doing that, and so they they express honestly in an immature way, I hate you. But this is what the world says to God. I want to do what I want. I want to say that I'm a girl. I I want a man to be able to say that they're a woman. Pastor, you've said that every week. Is Is there a better example in the world? What did God create? God created male and female. Created he them. No, he didn't. 
what, what, what did I have? What, what, what is it? It's a girl. It's a girl. And the baby, seconds old, says, no! <laughs> you see, man has set in his heart to do evil. And what does God do? God shows mercy and grace. Why do the heathen rage? Hold your place in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, get 2 Peter chapter 3. There's a time component. We won't turn there, but in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, the people that have died during the tribulation and they're waiting for God to judge, they're underneath the altar of God and they cry, O Lord, holy and true, how long, O Lord, how long till thou execute judgment? This is the constant cry of the people of God. God, why do you wait? Why do you wait? Well, first of all, God's not in a hurry. Does the Bible say that? Look at what it says. Don't be ignorant. Verse 8, 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, but beloved... Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So, God's really not waited that long. Amen? He's not in a hurry. Why, O Lord? Why do the heathen rage? The kings are setting themselves against you. God, why are you, when are you going to do something about this? Verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because remember, God is going to care for it, but when he does, after that, no one else can come to repentance. Why do the heathen rage? Because God loves you. Why, why does he allow the kings to set themselves against each other? Because God loves you. Because God loves you. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Look at what it says. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now, you all know, I say this every time we read this verse, elements couldn't melt until we learned how to split an atom. Y'all understand that, right? The elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be, what does it say? Seeing then that all these things shall be what? What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being, what what are those next two words? Shall shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Notice that's repeated. What is repetition in the Bible? Why do the heathen rage? We live in a time, and of course that was the cry of the early church, and we live in a time where it looks like the world is falling apart, where evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. Oh, wait a minute. Did God tell us that was going to happen? 
deceiving and being deceived? Is there any deception going on? We look at the injustice in the world. In North Dakota, a man ran over a young man because he thought he was a Republican extremist, killed him with his car. He got a five-year sentence. Understand that a guy just got a 22-year sentence for being a part of January 6th. This is injustice. And we look up and we say, why do the heathen rage? And we want God to do something about it. Go back to Psalm 2 and let's look at how God does something about it. The constant cry of the people of God, Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And God is really concerned about it. He that sitteth in the heavens shall shake. He's going to cry. He shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, please understand, everybody look up here for just a second. How many of you believe that? But when Christians say that out loud, then we're not loving. See, God knows what the kings are going to do. God's given them an offer of salvation. He's given them the word of God, the people of God. He's given them the history of the people of God. He's given them... He's given them his law, according to Romans chapter 2, written on their hearts. They know right from wrong. They know who God is. The heavens declare the glory of God. If we don't praise him, the very rocks will cry out and praise him. They know who he is, yet they set themselves together against him. What's he going to do? Verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Patrick, find this verse for me. I meant to look it up where the Bible says that the Old Testament is given for examples for the last time. Somebody find that verse for me. But look at what this says in verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet... Look at this. Have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion? Where is Jesus Christ going to sit? On the holy hill of Zion. This is mentioned 38 times in the book of Psalms. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now, look at what, now th that right there, that's a, that's a pretty serious judgment. Would you all agree with that? But look at the counsel we should receive from it in verse 10. Be wise now, therefore. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Hold your place here in Psalm 2. Go to Revelation chapter 14. 
after the rapture of the church, all the believers are raptured out. We go to be with the Lord. For seven years, there's judgment here on earth. And God deals with the nation of Israel and with the nations as they come against him. But all during that time, even though there's idol worship, there's the worship of the beast and the Antichrist, there's a one-world religion, there's a one-world economic system, there's a one-world government, there's the control, complete control of the media, all of that will be going on. The entire world will be able to see the beast and hear the beast speak. That's what's going on. So how is the message of God going to get out? How many of you believe that we have a God of mercy and a God of grace? How many of you believe that? Look at Revelation chapter 14. And it says, verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of, thund- of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. <laughs> that always makes me laugh. What else are you going to do with a harp? All right. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. Verse 4. These are they which were not defiled with women. And this starts to describe the 144,000. But notice, not only does God give them 144,000 witnesses, pure people, look at what it says in verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having, look at what it's called, the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. What is that everlasting gospel? Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of waters. How about that? Isn't it interesting how often when God is going to judge And what God brings about, fear, that he says, I made it all. I made it all, and I can take it all back. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What is that everlasting gospel? Fear God. Give him glory. Go back to Psalm 2. What's the message? What's the message? Verse 10 Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It goes back to the same message. Our message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was not the message of the Old Testament. The message of the Old Testament was fear God, worship him. Fear God, worship him. What's the message in the tribulation? Fear God, worship him. Because he is coming in judgment. What was the message in Psalm 2? Look at the next verse. All right, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Look at verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled, look at what it says. But a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Okay, so now, really important. Did you find that verse for us? 
Look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, thanks Patrick. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. So let's start reading in verse 1. This fits perfectly with where we're going, okay? 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. You know what's fun about preaching the Bible? Is connections happen that you don't intend. Okay, so get Numbers, keep keep 1 Corinthians, get Numbers chapter 11. This is where we were going before Patrick looked this verse up for us. And so we will see whether or not we were teaching it properly. This is so fun. All right. When you get to Numbers 11, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. Have we seen that phrase a couple of times today? Sunday school class. Brethren, I not have to be ignorant concerning this one thing, that blindness in part has happened unto, the, unto Israel. Brethren, don't be ignorant. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Don't, don't be ignorant. Uh, moreover, brethren, chapter 10, verse 1, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So remember what happened? They get to the, the Red Sea, children of Israel. Moses is leading them out of, Israel, or out of Egypt. They're going to the promised land. They get to the Red Sea, and God parts it, and they walk through on dry ground. And the water stood up on the side of them, and the cloud of God covered them. All right? That's what this is talking about. And we're all baptized. So verse 1 again. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea... And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, that's manna. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Remember, he just said, smite the rock. God told Moses to take his rod and smite the rock, hit it. And water came out of the rock. That rock is Jesus. Jesus Christ only dies once. Remember, Moses got mad hit the rock again because of that he couldn't go into the promised land why because remember for us prophecy is prediction for the jew prophecy is pattern the pictures matter that rock is jesus he'll only be smitten once roman catholicism teaches that jesus dies again every time you take the communion every time no 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 no. he's only smitten once amen just once taste of death once for all the bible says i love it I love it. So, verse 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all of these things happened unto them for in samples, 
and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. All this stuff in the Old Testament is for us. God has not changed. Why do the heathen rage? The constant cry of the people of God. Why is the world against you, God? When are you going to take care of it? Well, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. The last Gentile gets saved. The church of God is taken out. And then God starts dealing. But what does it mean? You look at Psalm 2 and Numbers 11. Psalm 2 and Numbers 11. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I know Numbers is your favorite book in the Bible. Psalm 2, verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Whenever the word kindled is used with God's wrath, something bad is about to happen. This is such a good example of it. There's not a whole lot of explanation. It's just told to us. Numbers chapter 11. In verse 1. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses. And when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. Okay, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Here's your two choices. Kiss the son. Worship him. You'll be blessed. Come against him. And his anger only needs to be kindled just a little. And we're consumed. Why doesn't God do that with Joe Biden? You know, all through my life, I've heard of certain individuals that are raised up. John F. Kennedy was going to be the Antichrist. Gorbachev, the Antichrist. Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Winsome, powerful, able to draw people together after him. You know, I've never heard one person say that Joe Biden is the Antichrist. <laughs> Why would God need to raise up and kindle his wrath against this group? I started to use some words that I probably shouldn't use publicly. That is against us. You know what we need to do? We need to trust God. We need to trust God. What, what is the mountain that's in front of you right now? What is the trial that you are in right now? As a church, what is our trouble? 
Are you ready for this? Are y'all ready for this? We don't have any trouble. As a church, the parking lot's got cracks in it. It's on the schedule. Hopefully they come before it gets cold. God gave us the money through you. But what is our trouble that we have? Honestly, as your pastor, do you know what I see our trouble as? We don't trust God enough. We don't tell people about Jesus enough. We get focused on our trouble too much. Would you all agree maybe those are our problems as a group? So what ought we to do? What should we do to address this? Well, we should pray with one voice. Lord, help us trust you more. Lord, help us tell people about you more. Lord, help us make little of our trouble and much of you. You know, when we're in trouble, it's very difficult to, put, to, to, to take our eyes off of our trouble and to look up to him. It becomes very difficult for us to do that. I had this whole message prepared today of going through history, and maybe I will do it another time, about what God has done for us. Let's just do it. Can, can I show you something amazing? Go to, let's just talk about it. We won't even take the time to look it up. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that God looked out and it, it, it repented him. He, he, he was sorry that he had made man at all. Why? Because the, the thoughts of the imagination or the imaginations of the hearts of men were only evil continually. So what did he do? He killed them all. Done. Judgment. He spared Noah and his family. Noah and his family, they survive, they get a new earth, they get a new economy, God changes everything for them, and man, we have the descendants of, in Genesis chapter 9, you have the descendants of, of Noah and all the different people groups that come from them, Genesis chapter 10, they're all one, Genesis chapter 11, they start building an idol, a tower against God. And they think that they're going to build a tower that gets to where God is. I watched an archaeologist talk about the Tower of Babel. And I don't know that I agree with his conclusion that, that they found it and it would be about 300 feet tall. But he made this statement that was so good. It, it demonstrates their wrong thinking. If they thought If they could build a tower that's 300 feet tall, they don't understand how far they really are from God. Right, But the Bible actually says that nothing will be restrained from them. They were going to build a tower that reached to heaven. This is before the, the diminishing of IQ, of intelligence, because of the, the, just the genetic baggage that all of us have. Right, People were smarter then. That's, that's, that's what we need to understand. Who knows what they could have built and done? God said nothing will be restrained from them that they can imagine to do. And so God, in his mercy, scattered the languages. People that, that do archaeology work in that part of the world, it's called Levant. That area is called the Holy Land, all of that area. What they find is that there was, there was a civilization that was there and that was very successful, very prosperous, but it wasn't overthrown. It wasn't destroyed by a battle. They just left. Huh. 
like in Genesis chapter 11, where God confounded their languages and they were scattered across the face of the earth. Imagine that God could do that. And so, as they gather, people start either worshiping God or worshiping idols. God looks down this place called Ur and he chooses a man named Abraham. Abraham is old. His wife is old. He says, you're going to have a baby. She laughs. And God is, God is so gracious. Here's what going, here's what God says. Why did you laugh? You laughed when I said that you were going to have a baby. And Sarah, I did not laugh. And God doesn't do anything to her except you did laugh. (laughs) So it's such a funny passage. And then when Isaac is born, what does she call him? Laughter. Isn't that a blessing? And so God's people, God's people, God preserves his people through Jacob, through Joseph. They end up in Egypt. They have success in Egypt. And then God has to use plagues to bring them out of Egypt. And as they bring them out, the people, the kings gather together against his people. And so what does God do? He wipes them out in the Red Sea. And he establishes people in the land. But there are giants in the land. There are these people in the land. They're all like Wade. They're giants. And they're against God and against God's people, just like Wade. So what does God do? God says, kill them all. Kill them all. And, you know, people hate God because of that. Well, if you knew what was going on in those places and you knew how righteous God was, you'd know that God was exactly right to have him do that. But what happens in the meantime? Abraham, he goes and he has a city. He has, he has this, this, this kingdom of his own. And he has a, a relative named Lot. And the, the ground didn't sustain Lot's men and uh, Abraham's men. And so let's, let's divide. Let's, let's divide. And so Abraham says, take whatever land you want. And he looks towards Sodom, the well-watered plains of Sodom. But look at Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13. You can't make it up. 13 is the number of rebellion. Let's look at Genesis 13, 13. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And so what does God do? God, the the, the unrighteousness was crying out against God and against God's holiness. So God said, I'm going to destroy him. There was a king of Sodom. The king of Sodom had come out with the king of Gomorrah and the kings of the other cities, and they had gathered together to fight against another group of kings. During that time, Lot and his family are carried away by the one set of kings. And so Abraham gathers his men together, his 300 and some fighting men, and they go and overcome this other army and they conquer them in the middle of the night and bring his people and all of Sodom's goods back. The king of Sodom comes out and and he offers Abraham some of the goods. And Abraham says, no, I'm not going to take anything from you lest you say that you've made me wealthy when it's God who did that. He didn't want anything from that city. When God decided to destroy that city, what did he do? The Bible says, look at Genesis chapter 13. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 19. Verse 
Verse 23, Genesis 19 and verse 23. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and look at what it says, and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. So you have these well-watered plains of Sodom. That's what the Bible says. Archaeologists have gone to that area, and over the last 50, 75 years, they've started discovering some things. And there's a dispute. Is it, is it at this tell that's at the northern part of the Dead Sea, or is it the southern part of the Dead Sea? Which one? Well, the problem is, when you go to the northern part of the Dead Sea, they started digging in the ground. This guy was digging in the ground, and he thought it was from a particular period of time, but he found this piece of pottery, and that piece of pottery had glazing on one side. So he was very discouraged, because glazed pottery didn't begin until a thousand years after Sodom and Gomorrah. He turned it over, and the other side, it was ancient pottery. And they threw it up out of the hole to a man that was, on the, uh, that was helping with their dig. This man had happened to work on the Manhattan Project. He was an engineer on the Manhattan Project. And he was there at, at the Trinity site in New Mexico when the atomic bomb was tested for the first time. And so when this piece of pottery with what looked like glazing on one side was thrown up to him, he looked at it and he said, this looks like Trinitite. And he said, what's Trinitite? Trinitite is a substance that was created during the atomic bomb where the sand and the things around it were turned into something that looked like glass. And it takes over 4,000 degrees of heat to do that. And the amazing thing about this piece of pottery, it was sent off, and it, the, the, the tech at the lab, when she looked at it, she said, oh, this is a nice sample of Trinitite. The one who discovered it said, should we call it Sodomite? That that probably wouldn't go well. And they tested it, and it's the same thing. There was never a nuclear blast on the northeast corner of the Dead Sea. There's another site on the southern part of the Dead Sea. Two sites that they consider that, that there's an argument of which of these are Sodom. And they're digging in this spot and they find a whole layer of ash. And all around it are these balls. These They look like rocks, but they're, but they're balls. And if you pick them up, they'll burn their sulfur balls like fire and brimstone. At the one site in the north, they found a wall, and they have found skeletons of people who were standing behind this low wall, and it's like a flame came across, and they're charred and dissolved from this point up. And so they're trying to figure out, was this some kind of cosmic event like happened in 1908 in, in Siberia where they think uh, a meteor exploded a few miles above the earth and destroyed 2,000 square miles worth of stuff in Siberia? It, it, was it some kind of cosmic event that caused it? Yes. 
But here's the other thing that they can't figure out. Why wasn't the whole piece of pottery consumed? Because it happened like that. It was kindled, and then it was out. And why is it that these thriving civilizations in these well-watered plains, now it's desolate, and there's almost no evidence of civilization at all? Because the Bible says not only were the people consumed, but the ability of the ground to produce was consumed. Listen, when the sun's anger was kindled, but a little. And all through history, we have seen God intervene. God had a plan for missions in that Philadelphia church age where he would take the word of God around the world and give man one last chance to respond to the gospel. And in order for that to happen, there were groups that could not succeed. So in the 700s, Islam is taking over the globe. And all of the sudden, they try to take France. And Charles Martel defeats them, I think, in 732. And that stops them. They try to persuade, they try to grow a little bit more. But no, God stops them. And they had mathematics. They had medicine. It's during the dark ages because they actually had some of the word of God. They were doing so much better than Europe was in so many ways, but it was not God's plan for Islam to take over the globe. You get into the 1400s and God wants the Bible to go around the world. The Reformation is about to start because God's word is getting into the hands of the people. And so he defeats the largest army, the largest navy in the world. He defeats it with the defeat of the Spanish Armada. England didn't beat them. God did. It was weather and fire and a few chips. No, no, God did it. But at that same time, China has a navy that can conquer the world. They can take it over. But by 1525, what does God do? China decides we don't want the corruption of the rest of the globe. And the emperor, the Chinese emperor, destroyed every ship that could go out onto the ocean. Because God had a plan. Why do the heathen rage? God is not just sitting on his hands. He, God does intervene in the affairs of man. Recently I told you about... The, what, what God did with Abraham Lincoln and with Seward and with the, the Alaska and Seward's folly and then with the, with the Guano Treaty and Midway and all of those things where God just has a plan and he intervenes in the affairs of man through very small things or very large things. And yet the people of God get so focused on their own problems that they forget what God has done in the past. And he's given us those things for examples. Those are things on the outside. He's given us those things for end samples. Those are the things that we've seen with our own eyes. God has done all of that for us over and over and over and over and over again. But we get so focused on our own time, we get so focused on our own problems that we forget how great God is and that he has people all over this globe that have it much worse than us. And yet, he's withholding his hands of judgment. Why? Because he is long-suffering. See, we want God to fix the world for us when we have it better than anyone else in the world. Do you know what we need to do? We need to trust God more. We need to tell people about Jesus more. 
And we need to make our problems small and Jesus great. Amen? Isn't that exactly what the early church did in Acts chapter 4? Lord, why did the heathen rage? The constant cry of the people of God. Why is that the constant cry? Because we know he can stop it. We know that he hates sin and loves righteousness. We know that, and he has promised that judgment is coming. That's why we cry for it. But when we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Understand that unless we lead him to Christ, we're also praying for the judgment of our neighbors. Amen? Constant cry of God's people. I think that we need to unite in prayer as a people of God. We need to unite together. And we need to, with one voice, in one accord, praise our God, praise our Creator, and trust Him for everything. Amen? Let's all stand together. Lord, we don't deserve anything from You. And Lord, I know that's small comfort to people who are in trouble.